Are you a high-performing real estate investor who's looking to further elevate your performance? If so, download our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits by joining our insider network at elevatepod.com. This guide created by yours truly has the power to put your transformation on autopilot and exponentially change your trajectory. Go get your free copy now at elevatepod.com. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I am blessed and grateful to be sitting with Atticus LeBlanc today. This is a phenomenal conversation. You're going to learn so much about how being a doer and bias towards action can create massive purpose and passion in your life, massive success, massive innovation in your business. And ultimately, there's a pattern here. You're going to observe a pattern behind passion, behind purpose, behind contribution, behind making a difference in society and making massive financial change for yourself, for your business, for the people that you care about and for your life and creating a lifestyle around that. And you're also going to learn some amazing tactics around how you can use your real estate in a more innovative capacity and how you can even amplify your cash flow in a huge way, perhaps through this tool. So I think there's a lot to be said about this episode. I want to encourage you to get your notepad out, get your iPhone notepad out, whatever it is, jot down a few ideas because you're going to get a lot in this episode. And Elevate Podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal growth for high-performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I am a professional real estate investor and a high-performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar together today. With all that said, before we dive in, I want to encourage you, if you haven't done so already, as you know, the fee for listening to Elevate By the way, it's 100% free. It doesn't cost you a dime. All you have to do is just share this episode, share this with someone that you care about, share this with a friend, share this with a colleague, share this with a business partner. Maybe it's a customer. Share this episode with someone that maybe you just met or you've known forever. If you've already shared Elevate with someone else previously, thank you. We just ask you to do that once again. And that's the the fee for really showing up today and and listening. And and we're going to give you tremendous value. By the way, also, want to encourage you to please give us a rating, a review. It's extremely helpful for us as we continue to grow this podcast, as we continue to bring on world-class experts and incredible individuals, and we glean massive value from them. So please give us a rating, review, subscribe, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And with that said, I want to dive in and introduce you to Atticus LeBlanc, who is the founder and CEO of PadSplit, a mission-driven company that helps solve the affordable housing crisis one room at a time. Through his innovative shared housing model, PadSplit aligns incentives between cities, nonprofits, and property owners to spur cost-effective housing creation without public subsidy, all while providing safe and affordable housing for working-class individuals. Before founding PadSplit, Atticus served as an affordable housing developer. And man, you're going to love this conversation. So I want to invite you to enjoy this phenomenal podcast with Atticus LeBlanc. Atticus LeBlanc, welcome to Elevate, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity. 
No, thank you for being here, man. It's a, it's a really exciting time to, to talk about a lot of the things that I know we're going to talk about today when it comes to making a contribution through real estate. But before we dive into that, I want to get to know you just a bit further. I want to introduce you further to Elevate Nation. One of the ways that I like to do that is to ask my guests, I think I feel like it's a pretty interesting question is if you were to describe yourself in the way that your closest friends or family members might describe you, maybe the people that really know you best, what would they say about you, Atticus? You know, I, I would say doer is probably the the single word. If people ask me, hey, what do you want? What's, what's the single word you would pick on your on your tombstone? That would probably be it. And certainly what I would hope my my friends and colleagues and family would would say about me. Uh, I like to get things done and uh, not sit on the sidelines and usually more than one thing, but, um, but it hopefully at least one. That's awesome. And I'll be honest with you. I had a, I had a teacher growing like high school. Her name was Miss Dewar, but I never thought of her in that way. Of like <laughs> She's the doer. It wasn't spelled that way, but that's really cool. And I mean, there's a lot to be said about that. Obviously there's this thing that, you know, it, it's kind of like a phrase or a, a thought process. A lot of people in the personal growth space, you can you can go on one side of the spectrum and you can be almost a success zombie to where it's like you read every book, you listen to every podcast, you know every philosophy, but knowing isn't doing. So there's a big difference. Have you always been on that side of the fence? Uh, I think so. I mean, I, I spend a fair amount of time thinking creatively and being very analytical. And I'm, I'm absolutely a big picture person, but always uh, with the intent of, of having a bias toward action. And where I derive any sort of fulfillment is uh, usually in the act of doing and, and that you can have a concept and drive that concept all the way to completion. Uh, and, and those are the, the most fulfilling things that, that I think I've, I've ever had the opportunity to engage in. Yeah. One of the reasons why I love doing the podcast is because we can kind of do some digging. We can do a little bit of uh, an exploration process together to really understand like where do certain things come from and how can listeners integrate that into their own lives and how can they take their lives to the next level, their businesses to the next level, which is really, you know, a purpose of having this conversation, but also gleaning insight and inspiration. And so I'd love to go back if we were to kind of talk about your upbringing just a bit and get an understanding of where you came from you know, what life was like kind of early on and through your adolescence and so forth, maybe a, maybe a high level, but could you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Sure. I am the second of four children. Had a, had an older brother about two and a half years older. And then there was kind of family too. My younger sister is, is seven years younger than I am. And my younger brother is 11 years younger. Uh, two very supportive parents, both of whom were, uh, were entrepreneurs. Uh, my mother actually um, was in law school when she had me. And that probably had some bearing on why I was named after Atticus Finch. But uh, she, she tells me it's because she wanted to give me someone to live up to. And yeah, I mean, I had loving, supportive family. I think they both my parents were and still are very civically minded, went to Catholic school, K through 12, uh, and formative years in, in high school, went to a, a Jesuit school where uh, the, the motto is ad maiorum dei gloriam, which is uh, a Latin phrase uh, meaning for the greater glory of God. And they talk about being men for others. Uh, so certainly service has, has been instilled in me, I think from a, from a pretty early age and something that I've, I've always taken to heart. Uh, and then the other important element I th I'd say of my upbringing was I started competitive swimming uh, when I was probably six or seven, uh, fairly seriously. And so spent a lot of hours uh, in the pool and really drawing that connection between the amount of effort and work that you put in versus what you get out of it and the results that, that you're able to derive. And there's not, there, there's not a better sport than swimming, in my opinion, to, to really see that connection 
uh, one way, one way or the other. Uh, as they say, the clock does not lie. Uh, and, uh, and so that's, that's certainly something that I've taken hard. Well, I would imagine that that probably is, it, it derives some of that competition perhaps with yourself, right? Because there's a lot of sports where you're competing against others and almost in life, it seems like ultimately we realize that, yeah, competitiveness can be good. It can be, you know, perhaps on the other side of the spectrum, but when you're competing with yourself, perhaps yeah. that's the best, you know, competition. Would you agree to that? Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, uh, you know, I, I had, I had big dreams of going to the Olympics, I guess, when I was, when I was younger and uh, given that I'm five, nine and 145 pounds, uh, it, it wasn't, uh, it was not going to happen, but I, I completed uh, my collegiate swimming career all four years without a scholarship. And it's still one of the proudest things that I've done largely because there were so many reasons not to do it. Uh, but, but just to be able to, to finish that out with the amount of effort uh, and, and sacrifice that was required. Uh, is is still something that it, again, yeah, it's a competition with yourself, and and to be able to to get through that is is something that I, I still uh, am, am super proud of. Yeah, and one of the things that I think is really interesting about that, I mean, I spoke to who's now become a friend of mine, uh, Rich Davini, a, a Navy SEAL commander for twenty years, a previous guest in the podcast as well, and he talks about attributes, and I think about you know competitive swimming, especially collegiately swimming for so long and competing against yourself, but the level of resiliency, you know, th that's an attribute that I would imagine you can strengthen through that process. You know, sure. uh, drive grit, tenacity, because there's probably so many times you're like, man, I do not want to get in this pool. I do not <laughs> want to do this. I, it is, it's early. It's cold. I cannot do this again. Right. So yeah. you've continually trained that, which I think is valuable. I think it's really interesting, but did you always know that you were going to get into real estate one day or did that kind of, did you stumble into that or how did that happen? At all in, uh, in college, I, uh, I thought for sure I was going to be an English major and then go to law school. Um, but Freshman year, I had uh, a, a, an English class that I hated uh, and a, a course called Study of the City, uh, which I ended up absolutely loving. And it was it was essentially like case studies and role playing uh, within the real estate development uh, and uh, kind of neighborhood uh, development space and just absolutely fell in love with it and decided, yeah, this is this is what I want to do. Uh, and it was, it was pretty much sealed the deal from there. That's awesome. So tell me about your first foray truly into the space thereafter outside of the classroom, because you stoked the passion and then you said, look, I'm going this direction. So what did that look like as you first took that step out of that door? Yeah, well, the first thing was, uh, so I, I rode a bike across the country after college, tried to figure out what I was going to do, ended up uh, following my, my college girlfriend uh, down to Atlanta. I knew I wanted to get out of the Northeast, but uh, was not um, was not going to be back in New Orleans where I grew up. Of course, it, it was not a, not a huge real estate town or just boom town by any stretch. So ended up following her to Atlanta and didn't know anybody here, had, had zero connections took a job initially in real estate financial consulting because a lot of the people that I, I called out and took informational interviews with suggested that I needed some sort of uh, financial background or at least training. Uh, and so that brought me there. It was a great experience, but only lasted six months and uh, realized that there's no way that I'm going to be sitting in a cube 12 hours a day, knocking around on uh, Microsoft Excel, or there's a, a program called Argus. But that was, that was the start. I think it's important, man. We have to understand, well, what's the basis? It reminds me when I got into the business, I didn't know anything about cash flow. I didn't know anything about discounted cash flow analysis, internal rate of return, cash on cash, all of these different things and how to even get there and how to even, you know, derive appropriate assumptions to really 
read the tea leaves and make appropriate decisions. But I think it's important to to note that that's the foundation, right? It's like, man, I don't want to stay here. And some people love to stay there. Some people love that for their career and, and, and God bless them because we need them to continue to be successful in our, in our business and so forth. And there's many of the listeners who may be in that boat as well. That's what makes the world go around. But then as you said, all right, well, I've got my foundation. Now I've got a baseline understanding. Where do I want to take this? So did you start investing um, or, or how, how did you interact in the business then? Yeah, I don't know that I was, I was quite ready to start investing, uh, but almost went to the opposite end of the spectrum. Went to work uh, with a, a gas convenience store company called Racetrack. Uh, which if you're, if you've heard of Quick Trip or Wawa or any of these larger, very professional, uh, well-run gas convenience stores, it's, it's one of those. But, uh, but yeah, it really was totally different in the spectrum where I was out in the field on the real estate side, talking to absolutely everyone about selling their property, identifying store locations, eventually ended up just on my own accord, uh, driving some analysis between the the existing store performance of which they had over 500 and some of those real estate characteristics to try to think about how do we uh, use data to to better inform the decisions that we're making around those locations. But it was fantastic experience in terms of negotiation, writing contracts. We even wrote our own legal descriptions and uh, and 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 drew out um, on just paper tablets uh, map locations. So uh, it was it was a tremendous exercise and, and learning experience to to really get in the weeds of how do you evaluate an opportunity uh, that was incredibly great experience when I then left ten days before I got married and decided I wanted to go do this on my own. Wow, no, that's really cool, and I think that there's a lot of value in what you just described in terms of that experience. You think about site selection and obviously expansion of a very successful business that had great systems, but then using data to make better decisions. I think it's important for any real estate investor, or any company to pay attention to what's happening, trends, right? And and read the tea leaves and make assumptions based on the bets, right? I mean, it's, it's not gambling, but it's also, you know, there's a little bit of an assumption based on data. And do we believe that past results, you know, will equal the future results and what type of assumptions are we making there? So I think that's really valuable whether you're, you know, an intro real estate investor, whether you're seasoned, there's a lot to be said about that. But then beyond that, taking a step further to say, well, what, what's the inherent qualities of this particular site or this particular property beyond just the data? So combining those two to make effective decisions is so valuable, but that's really cool and unique experience, especially for a gas station company. I mean, that's, that's yeah. one that I haven't, uh, haven't run into too tremendously often, but you think about real estate and obviously there's so many different vantage points. But one of the things that that I know that you've become so passionate about is the affordable housing crisis, right? And, and one of the things that we're facing in this country, especially now, I mean, you look at the housing market, you look at even just rent rates that tremendously continue to rise across the country in every single market. And I think I would agree with you that we do have a bit of a crisis, but could you talk a little bit about that and what that really means and what's going on? Yeah, well, I'll say, look, I mean, my, my thesis in college was in housing. So, you know, I'd always kind of had that passion of just figuring out how to get there. Uh, and so when I went out on my own, I, I just happened to be in a position in late 2007 uh, where I saw that homes were a lot cheaper than they should be. Um, and uh, and this was this was an opportunity for me as a real estate investor first and foremost. And only after those next couple of years did I start to realize the perspective of the folks who were in desperate need of affordable housing options. 
And uh, it had never occurred to me previous to this that you could be working full time in any number of different jobs and not be able to afford any traditional housing options. And I think even today, like if I surveyed the general population in the United States, most people just generally are not aware of that, uh, that you can be working one or even two full time jobs more often than not and not afford a decent place to stay. Uh, and as you look at Atlanta, case in point, the the average rent for a one bedroom apartment here is one thousand five hundred twenty seven dollars a month. Uh, so for any property managers out there listening, you know, the the typical underwriting requirement is three times monthly rent. What's fifty five grand a year? I wasn't making fifty five grand a year when I left my last job in 2005. And when I got out of college, my first job paid me 30 grand a year. So uh, there's a lot of jobs out there. Uh, and you don't have to look far at all to see uh, folks that are in desperate need. And the, because of rising home prices, rising rents, uh, I mean, we're short on the order of seven and a half million homes right now uh, in the U.S. to uh, to actually meet that need for for the affordable workforce. Uh, so it's a it's a huge need. I mean, I saw it in 2007, 2008. And then, of course, supply went off a cliff. Uh, and so the, the hole's only been getting deeper and the, the situation's only been getting more and more desperate, uh, which has really been revealed through the through the last year of the pandemic. Yeah. And it just keeps compressing. Right. It just keeps getting worse. Right. And in some capacities, you look at, you know, you look at the housing market, you look at the real estate market, which, by the way, it's all interconnected. Right. The real estate market, capital markets and so forth, they're all interconnected. But you look at it from an investor's point of view and you say, well, cap rates are compressing. And obviously we're talking about commercial properties or multifamily properties or even you know other asset classes. And you look at it from that vantage point, you say cap rates are compressing. And so investors are paying higher prices for properties. And you know even if they're buying a collection of homes and to be able to cash flow those deals, you can understand, well, you know, you've got to maximize the marketplace. And at the same time, this is an issue on the other side of things because you talk about this. If you're making 55 grand a year, Typically, these are hardworking individuals. These are people who are, you know, maybe they're teachers, maybe they're um, firefighters, maybe they are um, policemen or women. And, and these are people that are essential to our community, which, you know, lack of a, a better term. I mean, that's a term that has been flown around, you know, so frequently over the past 18 months as essential workers, right? And, and essential business. And these are people that make our communities go. And so thinking about how do we bridge this gap? I mean, because both sides of this issue are very challenging and and we'll definitely talk about your company because I think it's an awesome solution but what other thoughts or or you know what other things have you considered in terms of bridging this gap and I'm sure we'll get into pad split to a, to a large degree but where would you like to go with this yeah I mean I think there are there are two fundamental issues uh, one is is what wages are, are people paying uh, and you can you can either increase the um, uh, the wages side of the equation, which is incredibly difficult for an, an individual like me or you or, or probably any of the listeners, um, except you can at least control what you pay your own people to, to some degree, uh, depending on whatever good your business happens to be selling. But the thing that we can control if we're in the housing business is how do we allocate those costs and uh, how do we how do we address the cost side of the equation and the affordability of housing and ultimately increase the supply of housing uh, to meet that demand? Because this is a simple supply demand equation where uh, if you increase the amount of supplied housing that's available, uh, the more affordable it will become. And uh, I mean, you you see this around the country as you look in I don't know South Bend, Indiana, or 
uh, one of these Rust Belt towns that is has decidedly lower population than they did at one point in time. No shocker, homes are a lot cheaper uh, than they are in in areas that are growing very rapidly. Um, and, and so at, at the end of the day, what we can do is effectively create supply. And, and that's really the, the side of the equation that we've we've chosen to focus on. Create supply. So, I mean, there's a lot of things to be said about that. And one of which is, you know, new construction. And, um, you know, you think about that and obviously, you know, if you can get lumber prices under control and all the different materials and labor costs and on that side of the equation under control, as well as land and so forth. And so that's a really interesting piece. But one of the things that I love about you and what you're doing is that you're looking at and saying, look, guys, yeah, I see that's an issue as well. Let's see what, what we, what do we have in front of us and let's get creative. Let's get innovative. So talk to me a little bit about pad split and what that's all about. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the most cost effective way to create supply is uh, use what you already have. And so we look at the fact that over the last 60 years, single family home sizes have tripled. Uh, meanwhile, if you look at the average household size, it's declined 24%. And the greatest share of the, of the population and, and even greater in renters are single persons, sing, single person households. And so the reality is the supply that we need largely already exists and it's trapped in spaces like formal dining rooms. And I ask investors, when's the last time you ever got paid for your formal dining room in a rental property? Uh, it's never happened to, unless you're like hosting weddings in your <laughs> formal dining room, like it's just never happened. Uh, and that space exists. It was designed for residential use. And yet it, it creates no value at a time when demand is higher than it's ever been. So what, what we enable investors and property managers to do is to unlock that latent supply, uh, whether it is through a formal dining room or other spaces that are unmonetized and, and very inefficient today, and use those to create housing supply that is much more affordable uh, for these single person uh, members of the workforce that, as you said, are, are truly frontline essential workers. Uh, and then what we do is build the technology uh, that enables them to to do that, right? There are, there are a couple tools that have to exist that landlords generally either cannot do on their own or have no desire to do on their own. Uh, so there are three elements there. First is the source of lead generation to get those rooms filled very quickly uh, and to get those people that are lower income and earn too little income to be screened for a traditional uh, housing option and often don't have credit uh, to be able to do so or don't have savings to pay those deposits and get those people moved into those rooms very quickly and efficiently. The second thing is the way that we do that and the way that we make sure that folks that are earning uh, our median income right now is $22,000 a year, but we make sure that they are paying on time largely because we are billing on a weekly basis uh, or customized on whatever their payday from their job happens to be. Uh, and including all of the um, all of the living costs into one bill. So those rooms are furnished. Uh, we include all utilities, Wi-Fi, laundry. We even include credit reporting and access to telemedicine. And but when we have six people in a home, that means you're collecting more than 25, 26 payments every month. And no landlord has the capacity or desire to really do that. And then the third thing is just building accountability uh, and and getting those calls to make sure that roommates are living together in a, in a copacetic way and that everyone is behaving as a kind, independent, respectful adult, uh, which is which is a huge challenge. And uh, I'm sure you don't want to get any calls uh, if you have, you know, 
one roommate stealing another roommate's cookies or playing their music too loud or those types of things. And so uh, from a base level, those are the three things that we do or the lead generation, the payments processing, and then the accountability aspects. That's awesome. And so essentially to, to even take it a step back even further, what we're looking at is single family houses and turning that into essentially shared housing, right? And, uh, you know, evaluate or, you know, basically updating sort of the layout and reusing some of the space so that you can accommodate multiple tenants at one time. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it's, it's not, um, I mean, I'd, I'd say our use cases are uh, universal. So it's not limited to single family homes. We, we have some apartments. Uh, we have individuals who rent rooms in their own homes uh, as well. Uh, but, uh, but largely uh, in America, at least, because single family homes have the most square footage, uh, those, that's where you find the most inefficiency as well. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital. And you know how much I love real estate and how it can be a vehicle towards creating any outcome that you want in your life, which is really why we created CF Capital, a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety for our investors, for our partners, and for the people that we serve. Our team leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors like you with superior risk-adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high-value multifamily communities. Our philosophy is that we can elevate communities together through this process. And I want to invite you to go check out cfcapllc.com because we have a free ebook that's called the bottom line, the 10 ways to increase cash flow in an apartment complex. And I want to tell you that this is a value packed ebook. So I want to, want to invite you to go check that out right now at cfcapllc.com. I think you're going to get a ton of value just from reading this, whether you apply it to your own business or whether you educate yourself further on what it would look like if you invested with CF Capital. So go check that out at cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com and enjoy the rest of the show. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I think it's really interesting because the other thing too is as investors, you always have to add value, right? You know, if you're going to, you can obviously buy a stabilized asset and, you know, write it out and as I say, clip a coupon and, and you know, enjoy certain amount of cash flow for a certain period of time, but you're probably not going to add a tremendous amount of value to that asset, you know, in, in, in the sense of true actual value over time, unless obviously you have a compression in the marketplace and the, and the marketplace changes, um, which is obviously that's happening right now. It has happened over the past 10 years, but that to me is a little bit more gambling rather than true investing. So the other side of this is you're actually adding value to different assets, right? You're in increasing that cash flow. You're also adding a benefit in terms of how you're serving the community and so forth. So could you talk a little bit about sort of that added value and what the stream of revenue typically looks like when you make these type of changes? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll look at it over, over 2020 and trailing 12 of about a hundred homes on our platform. Uh, there was, even with the, the pandemic and uh, all of the challenges that came with that, uh, we still saw a, a net increase in profitability after all fees and costs of 129% uh, in net yield. So it's really significant. You'll see a lot more value from a, you know, where you can get six bedrooms in a home versus uh, two or three uh, or four. But um, 
the it's it's an incremental return. So if you're looking at it on like a, a gross yield perspective um, or return on cost unlevered, if you're underwriting typically in a single family rental right now between a four and maybe a seven percent return on cost, uh, we would typically be at a ten to a fourteen. Uh, in most cases. I like what you guys do on your website too, because you show about like, all right, if you own a a typical single family home and let's just say your rent is $1,000 a month, or maybe it's even $700 a month or $600 a month, you can show sort of the the typical cost to operating that property. But then when you make some of these changes, and obviously you make some investments, not only in the platform, but in terms of how the property is laid out. And what I understand also is furnishing the asset as well, and so obviously there's some upfront, what I would call in some cases, capital expenditures, perhaps, and that you're basically, you know, tripling or even quadrupling perhaps that gross number and maybe even, at, you know, somewhere in the same ballpark in terms of the net number as well. Could you simplify it and say, all right, well, if we go from, you know, $700 a month, typically on a single family home rental, what does that typically look like when you guys uh, make these changes? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it, it could easily be two to three X. Uh, comfortably, and, and as you mentioned, uh, our our technology team did a did a great job uh, creating a customizable calculator that scrapes rental data from whatever uh, zip code you happen to be in, and uh, you can put in the the number of bedrooms in your existing home, uh, as well as how many additional spaces you think you can capture, and it'll give you not quite a full P and L, but pretty doggone close uh, with the expectations of of what uh, what those costs are. Uh, in your particular community. Uh, so you have a really good idea very, very quickly of whether or not the asset that you have is going to make sense for this model. Uh, but uh, but yeah, we're, we're really, I'd say, um, uh, intrigued by the number of, of options that, that can be created. And uh, it's applicable in a, in a lot of different places. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, I'd, I'd encourage anybody to check out patslip.com slash hosts if if they're curious to try out the calculator. Yeah, it seems to me, and I'm sure you've had this uh, many times, but it seems to me like a Airbnb of affordable housing. I mean, in many, many respects. Would you yeah, agree? Yeah, we do that a lot. Um, yeah. and, and as a technology platform, I, I think it's fair. I mean, what I appreciate about Airbnb is it's also universally applicable to a lot of different use cases. And, and we certainly envision that, uh, that that we can be as well. And it's, it's I think, from a, from a management standpoint, probably sits somewhere between a traditional, completely passive uh, rental situation versus an Airbnb, which tends to be very, very active. Uh, we're not nearly as as active or require as much uh, operational capacity as an Airbnb when you're doing those turns every, call it, couple days uh, and replacing the linens and so forth. Um, but um, but it, it's probably still more, uh, requires more intentionality than, than a traditional model. So are the tenants signing annual leases. I know you mentioned a lot of weekly payments and so forth, which is very thoughtful and very innovative in terms of how you're approaching that on, on some of the lower income individuals, but are most folks signing longer term leases or how does that work? Yeah. So our, our average stay is 10.2 months. Okay. Uh, but historically, our minimum requirement was only one week. Uh, and, and that was very intentional. Uh, interestingly, I think I might've mentioned, I, I started in the shared housing space in 2009. I still have one of the same tenants living with me, paying week to week since 2009. Uh, so people will absolutely stay uh, for a long, long time. And about 25% of, of any given cohort of our users just doesn't leave. 
but today we require one month minimum and then that's it. They, they can move uh, with some degree of flexibility uh, after that. And in a lot of cases, as they change jobs, because many of them cannot afford cars uh, or, or don't want to have cars simply because of the, the added cost, uh, they can move locations. They can move uh, residences within the network uh, if they've changed a job and, and get a new location that happens to be much closer to their job where uh, they can commute much easier, whether it's walking, biking, public transportation, getting a ride, what have you. Uh, so, so that flexibility is a huge part of it for, uh, for the population that we're serving. That's awesome. So do you guys also provide management as well? Or is this something that each individual investor needs to interface their own style of management or approach? Yeah. So again, we're, we can be universally applicable. So uh, we uh, we can provide the the management services uh, as well uh, if necessary. But if you are an owner that has your own management team or your own handyman or people on staff uh, or your own management company, uh, we can we can work with those folks as well. I love it. And it sounds like you guys obviously are continuing to expand. So if we have listeners all over the country or even beyond, Will they have access to potentially explore pad split on their their assets? Yeah, absolutely. So we're in uh, we're in nine markets right now. Uh, we'll open in any market where we can justify the marketing expense to to go get new new members. Um, but uh, that usually means we need about a hundred beds in in a market in order to to open uh, at least today. That won't always be true, and, and at some point we'll be able to lower that threshold pretty significantly as we grow. But uh, but yeah, we're in, we're in nine markets uh, today. Largely in the, the kind of South, Southeast, Texas, Georgia, Florida, uh, but also looking in Indiana, Minnesota, Illinois, uh, the Carolinas. Uh, we have some units in Virginia and Louisiana as well. I love it. I love it. And one of the things that I think is really important about this and powerful about this, you know, we have many investors within CF Capital as an example that will ask me, they'll, they'll always say, hey, What's the impact that we're having? You know, I know that we're, we're we've got a great return on investment. We've got a great opportunity to, you know, compound returns and to you know accumulate wealth and create cash flow and all these beautiful things. But what impact are we having, right? And that's more and more the desire of investors is to make an impact beyond just the return. And so one of the things that you and I talked about before we started this episode together was how what you're doing is you're leveraging financial empowerment. So could you talk a little bit about that and what that means for the individuals that you're serving within this business as well? Yeah, I think it's on both sides. You know, it's both the, the hosts who have these properties uh, where I've seen uh, a woman who uh, had one, she was a stay-at-home mom who had a single rental property that now owns seven and is uh, taking in more than $30,000 a month. Uh, and she wants to go live in Italy. And then as importantly and, and more intentionally for our members, we are operating at 42% of the cost of the average apartment and 50% of the cost of what it would cost an extended stay hotel. Uh, it results in savings of more than $420 a month uh, for people that median income is 22 grand a year. So uh, it's, it's huge there. And, and I say as importantly, uh, not just from the, from the standpoint of, of building the savings, but also credit. We know that 85% of the folks that live with us uh, are improving credit scores while they're living with us. Uh, and I love hearing the personal stories of folks like Kiosha, who was able to save up enough to, uh, to buy our own home. Uh, and there are a number on our website of folks, the number of people on our website that uh, have saved enough money to start their own businesses. Uh, one guy, uh, when, they, uh, when the airline employees got furloughed, 
uh, took the opportunity and savings that he had built up to start his own shoe design business. We hear about these things all the time, whether somebody's saving money to, to get a deposit on, on their own apartment or uh, start a business or buy a car, or in some cases, even buy their own homes. And, and that's really what, what keeps me going and, and, uh, and is a great driver. And ultimately where I think uh, if we can incentivize both ends, both the suppliers and the and the users to to create this impact in a sustainable way um, that that ultimately will will be able to create that legacy for good in the world. Yeah, and uh, Simon Sinek said it best when he wrote "Start with Why." Right, it's about having purpose, and it's not just about that in terms of how can we sell something, but it is about you know pushing through challenges. It is about understanding that you know what we're doing or what you're doing, and and maybe many of the listeners and, and what is it that you're doing that's making a difference, right? And what's making a sustainable difference. Another thing that I'm really passionate about is that if it's not sustainable, it's not successful, right? Because you can do something just for a short period of time, but you know, that doesn't really make a difference in the long run. So what are you doing that's making a difference? I just think that's awesome. I think it's amazing. But is there anything that you would add to that? Yeah, I'd say what um, what I have really tried to focus on at every step is just aligning incentives. and. I firmly believe that most people are good and, uh, and that even includes landlords and real estate developers, right? And <laughs> as, as much as, as they get, a, uh, as they get a bad rap, um, I, I think if you can show people how they can generate higher returns by doing something that's good, they're going to choose that option. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and the more that you can incentivize them, uh, with, with the, the right option, that is also more profitable, the more you're going to have a sustainable endeavor uh, and, and the greater likelihood that, that it's going to last. Yeah. And that's a, that's a way to build in sustainability is to align those incentives and to structure your business practices in that way. That's really, really valuable. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things I wanted to just switch gears just a bit, and it is along the lines of a lot of what we've been talking about, but it comes down to innovative thinking. And you know, obviously the way that you've approached the business, it's not like you've recreated the wheel or you've you've sent us to Mars or a different planet. But the way that you've looked at real estate is you've said, all right, here's what we have. There's a problem. You know, there's a problem not only in the community and the society at large, but there's an opportunity that can be captured as well. And it's an abundant way to look at it. But you you've trained your brain or you've surrounded yourself with people that have allowed you to think in an innovative capacity. So could you talk a little bit about that and how you're continuing to foster innovation, not only within your own self, but people around you as well? Yeah. I mean, I think the, uh, you, you, you mentioned, uh, start with why, uh, I'd say the other question is why not? I mean, if you, if you see something and you start wondering, why do we do it this way? I mean, and one of those examples that I think is, is ultimately innovative, uh, for, for us at least are included in our model. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about two things. One is around utilities and seconds around payments. Uh, so utilities, it's always been an assumption that you never include utilities as a landlord. You, you just don't do it. Well, that was only because you didn't control the utilities and you wanted to ensure that behavior was, was incentivized appropriately. Okay. Well, now we live in a world where you can remotely control utilities inside a home <laughs> at any given point. Uh, and the issue is if you're not paying utilities and you know that someone else is bearing that cost, you're very unlikely to make any energy efficiency improvements. To, I'll pick a simple one. I can't tell you how many apartments I walked into that had 100 watt incandescent bulbs when nine watt LED bulbs are available for less than a dollar a piece. Why doesn't 
a landlord make those investments because their incentives are not aligned to do so if they know somebody else is going to pay that bill. And so for us, we said, okay, everyone's including utilities. And all of a sudden now all of our hosts are being super uh, intentional about the way that they renovate these homes to make sure that they're energy efficient. The second one is uh, rent is due on the first of the month. Okay. Well, for any listeners here, I'll give you three seconds. Uh, what day of the week is September 1st? Nobody knows. Right? Nobody knows. And yet we know that we have a population of folks that are living paycheck to paycheck that don't have $400 to scrape together. And then you're saying, okay, we're going to build rent on the first and your cable bill is going to be due some other day. Your gas bill is going to be due some other day. Um, your water bill is going to be due some other day. These bills are all going to fluctuate over the course of the year, even though we know your income does not. That doesn't make any sense. So, so why why not create a simpler system that makes it easier for those folks to be able to pay you? And that's why we bill weekly uh, or based on their payday, and we we make it all inclusive. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say just keep asking yourself why not when you see uh, these potential opportunities, and and just because it's the way that things have always been done, in no way indicates that it's the way that they should be done moving forward, and that there's not something more efficient. And I think just surrounding yourself with people uh, who will continually ask those questions and ask them of you to say, hey, Atticus, why do you keep doing things this way uh, when here is here is another alternative solution that is ultimately much more streamlined and efficient? Uh, and I think as a as a founder, as any entrepreneur, it's our job to uh, to peel off the different activities and and skills and uh, obligations that we have and hand those off to people who are better, smarter, faster than we are at, at doing those individual things. And so I've been an entrepreneur now for 16 years and uh, that's that's worked out real well and, and I've been able to have uh, some amazing people that I've, I've surrounded myself with and uh, absolutely positively could not have done it without them. Yeah. And I think it comes down to the basis of powerful questions like you just described. Why not? It's like we should question everything. Right. And surround yourself with other people who question you and allow you to challenge your own conventional wisdom. But are there any other big questions or lessons that you've learned maybe over the past few years that have really allowed you to think differently as well? I, I would just say uh, you cannot underestimate the impact of either hiring or surrounding yourself with really smart people who are capable of making independent judgment decisions. Uh, and if you have people who are capable of making independent judgment decisions, then that ultimately enables you to scale or retire or do whatever else it is that you want to do. Uh, if you have those people that you know are going to be there uh, to block and tackle and to show up on a consistent basis and do what you would ordinarily expect them to do, but in your absence. Uh, and just operate under the, the if I get hit by a bus today rule. Uh, and if the, if the business is likely to go on or whatever the endeavor is, is likely to continue and, and be sustainable, then, uh, then you've done something good. And if it requires you to be turning the crank every time where you're just getting paid, uh, essentially for, for the time that you put in, it's not really an investment at that point. Uh, it's, it's just getting paid for your time. Phenomenal advice, Atticus. That is super good. And I just want to encourage the listener to go back and listen to that section as many times as you can get it through your head. And uh, because you know what, as you kind of transition from whether you were an employee or whether you're working for someone else, but transitioning that mindset to an entrepreneur, this is one of the key components, right? It's not just, it's not about you trading your time for money. It's about 
put surrounding yourself with other people who can help you make decisions and giving yourself the space for bigger results as a result of that. It's not just about you to be the superstar here, but is there anything else that you would add to that, Atticus? No, I, I think that's it. Uh, I mean, if, uh, if you're not already humble as an entrepreneur, you will be. <laughs> <laughs> you will be made humble soon enough. You get, you get kicked every day and sometimes multiple times a day. Uh, and I'd say there's, uh, there's nothing that can uh, bring you as high or as low uh, as often as, as doing something on your own like this. And, um, yeah, I'm, I've been blessed with the opportunity and the privilege to be able to, to do it and, and to lead some, some great folks who I'm, I'm honored to be surrounded by. Atticus, you're awesome, man. This is a great conversation. I want to transition into the rare air questionnaire. It's all about being uncommon. It's all about surrounding yourself with other people who can inspire you and press you, push you and challenge you and also help you scale you know, for a greater vision, for a greater purpose. And I just think that you live that, you breathe that, and you've really shown us the way today. But I have a few more questions for you before I let you go. If I asked you, you know, if you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why? I've been, I've been listening to a lot of books recently. And uh, in terms of, I'll, I'll put, I'll pick a couple of different categories. Uh, on the, on the self-help side of things, uh, Atomic Habits is one of the the best ones that I've read recently. Uh, and I think, you know, to your point about, and what I feel like I've gotten from swimming in some ways subconsciously uh, is the, the willingness to, to suffer and, uh, and just delay gratification um, and, and to retrain yourself on wherever you feel like your shortcomings may be, or to, um, to reemphasize whatever you think your strengths may be. The second one I'd say uh, more common in startup world than in than in real estate, but lean startup, uh, and this this idea of uh, build, iterate, and learn, and just start, like just start, stop planning, just go do a thing that you can do today, and then the next day figure out how you can do it better, and just make sure that you are recording as a scientist or a data scientist everything that you are doing. Uh, and improve. And as long as you are continuously improving, uh, that's the most important thing. Um, and then, uh, you know, maybe a little unconventional. Uh, I think it's really important for, for anyone in a stressful situation to have some, have some fiction in their lives. Uh, and I've got a, I've got a couple of, uh, a couple of favorites, uh, East of Eden from John Steinbeck is, is one of those, uh, just, you know, beautiful prose, great writing, uh, city of thieves is, is another one. Um, and just, uh, talk about perseverance and, um, it's, it's fiction, but how to, uh, how to work yourself out of a sticky situation. Uh, those have been, uh, two of my, two of my favorites here, uh, in the last couple of years. That's awesome. And thank you for sharing that. We'll put links in the show notes to all those books. I'll have to check out the last two that you just shared, uh, because there's a pattern, man. Some of the highest performers in the world talk about reading fiction. It's about training your brain, but it's also about understanding deep wisdom. And uh, real quick on your, on your Twitter profile, you say that you're an amateur philosopher. So yeah. is this a way that you step into greater sense of, of philosophizing or tell me a little bit about that? I probably always consider that. I mean, even as a kid, I used to write like one liners. Uh, one of my favorites now is those who cannot create critique. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, anytime you're trying to do something and uh, Teddy Roosevelt talks about being the man in the arena. Uh, if, if you've read that. that oh, yeah 
you know, it's, uh, listen, you need every little bit of inspiration that you can get. I'd say largely from a philosophical standpoint, ultimately, again, I, I believe that, that most people are good, but that we're all trained to pursue our, pursue our interests. And, and it's really difficult to completely empathize uh, fully and completely with, with someone else. And ultimately you bring that back to yourself and uh, how you, how that fulfillment, even if it is helping another person makes you feel uh, and and that ultimately is the thing that that uh, that will drive you. And uh, I think fortunately for for most people, those things that if you really dig down deeply uh, over the course of your day or your week uh, and evaluate what are the things that that really gave you the most fulfillment and made you feel the best, made you feel the best. Largely, those are situations um, that are also inherently good uh, and. And I think if we can if we can focus on those aspects and acknowledge that uh, people will ultimately think for themselves and we can empower them with choices and opportunities rather than compelling them uh, in in some way, shape or form that uh, that we're ultimately going to be much more sustainable as a, as a group. I love that. That is, that's, that's really good stuff. Thank you for sharing that. And I can see, I don't think you're an amateur, man. I think you're, uh, I think you're a pro here. So we'll, I'm going to, maybe we'll update the profile here after the, uh, the conversation, uh, but that's awesome. And um, you know, in terms of obviously giving, right. I believe the secret to living is giving, but you have to give to yourself. You have to grow, you have to continue to expand. So if you had to say the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis, what would you say about that? It's, it's funny. I mean, where I get the most is personal engagement with other people. Unfortunately, when you become a CEO and the bigger the company becomes, the harder and harder that is to do. So uh, just earlier today, actually right before this podcast, I was engaged with our customer experience team and, and trying to make sure that I could uh, be engaged and also be helpful and, and still take calls from our members uh, and respond to tickets and, and ultimately work with the folks that, that we're serving every day, uh, because that's, that's ultimately what still drives me and, and makes me feel good and, and fulfilled. Uh, but also I think it's important to, to maintain that sense of perspective, uh, in any organization, whatever level you happen to be in. And, and so I, I'd say that's the, uh, you just get close to the problem. I mean, the, the, the problems are most likely to be solved by the people that are closest to them. Unfortunately, I can't solve those problems if I'm not, if I'm not that close. So yeah, I'd say a flavor of that on, uh, on, on any regular occurrences. I love that. And I think it's, you know, sometimes we want to hide from problems, right? Cause there's, there's a lot, there can be a lot in business, especially as an entrepreneur, especially as a CEO, as an investor, there's problems constantly. So it's about facing those and getting close to those and building that sustainable approach. So that's, that's awesome. But what's the biggest way that you elevate others around you, Atticus? The, the, the first core value of our company is uh, compassionate directness. Um, the second is uh, high integrity, and the third is optimism. I'd say largely it's it's through both uh, optimism and compassion, directness with folks. Being able to tell people the things that may be hard to hear but need to be said, uh, and then of course I can't pretend to always be optimistic, but uh, but I, I try to be. I try to be optimistic at least whenever I can. Uh, but if you're not, and if you're having a down day. Um, I, I try to be really vulnerable with, uh, with those folks as well. And let them know, look, it's not, it's not, it's not just you that this is, this is hard on, uh, it's hard on all of us. And, and I have bad days as well. And, um, and to just let them know that, uh, whenever, whenever they need to, to talk about something, uh, really any time of day, uh, I'm, I'm available for them. And I, I like to say that I have a, I have a no door policy. 
uh, and anybody in the organization can reach out and set up time. Man, you're an admirable leader. You're an admirable entrepreneur, someone who is contributing to society. I want to really acknowledge you for everything that you're doing, you know, not only from an innovative business perspective, but of course your contributions to society. And look, we all have this capacity within us to give, right? To grow, to become more, to give other people the opportunity to become more themselves and give a greater sense of abundance to the world around us. So, man, I just want to acknowledge you. I want to honor you so much for all of that. I want to honor you for an amazing conversation today. Is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation? Um, just do it. <laughs> I don't, the doer. I can come up with that one, but, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, I think that's it. It's just, it's just start. Um, and, and, uh, you know, you'll figure it out. I think things happen for a reason, but I uh, really appreciate the opportunity. And, um, you know, hopefully that, uh, hopefully somebody out there will be able to derive some value from this. You bet, man. We started with the doer and we ended with the challenge. Just do it. I love it. Atticus LeBlanc. My man, thank you so much. Everybody can visit padsplit.com to learn more about PadSplit. And of course, you can find Atticus across LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Is there any anywhere else where the listeners can find you, Atticus? I think I think that's it. Wandering around Georgia sometimes on the trail, um, sometimes on the river. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm available. That's awesome. That's awesome. We'll put links in the show notes as to where you can find Atticus. But Atticus, until next time, thank you so much for being on the show, my friend. Thank you, Tyler. Appreciate it. Wow. I just want to encourage you to reach out to Atticus to learn more about PadSplit because um, there's a lot to be said about what we just talked about, about the innovation, about the contribution, about the really the leadership. I mean, there was a lot of amazing stuff there with the uh, philosophies that Atticus was sharing with us there at the end. And I just think that's amazing. And he has a purpose, right? He has a reason to why he's doing things, a reason why he's committing to things. And, you know, if you haven't read uh, Start With Why by Simon Sinek, you should definitely read it because it's more than just that title. And there's a lot to be said about not only building and growing a successful business because of purpose, but also you know, going through challenges and being resilient and and pushing through challenges and building bigger visions based on something that's bigger than yourself, right? It's not just about making the most money. Of course, that's an amazing thing and you should, you know, make more money. You should continue to grow financially. But I'm telling you, I think you can even grow further financially if you give more, if you are a bigger, you know, more valuable to more people, right? And and ultimately, it's not just about being valuable to people with money. It's about being valuable to people who maybe maybe are struggling. What can you do to help someone else, you know, grab themselves up and and, and get to that next level themselves? Because you know what, We're, we're not alone in this world, right? We should all give to others. And I just think there's so much value to this conversation. I want to encourage you to re listen to the show, not only so you can learn more about the mechanics of what we just talked about, but how you can really glean what what can you do to take your contribution to the next level or your purpose, your passion to the next level? And how can you apply that immediately? I want to encourage you to share this with someone that you care about, someone that maybe you just met, someone that you've known for a long time. Let them know, what are you getting from this episode? What are your top takeaways? What's the number one, two, or three takeaways that you learned from this show? I want to encourage you to share that with someone else immediately. And most importantly, take action. Put this in action immediately. Until next time, Elevate Nation, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. 
Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.